if you're spending your time doing one thing, you can't spend your time doing something else. And there is, in many cases, a cost to that kind of circumstance. If you have to retrain in another specialty and you spend four years or five years or six years as a resident slash fellow, rather than as an attending in just cold economic terms, there's a real economic cost to doing that, to working as a resident, making 60 or 70 grand and working 80 hour weeks for years, instead of being an attending physician with hopefully a little more autonomy and a lot more compensation. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 161 of APM Success. I want to lead into this episode with a brief story. We were recently at a wedding where one ER physician was marrying another. And as sometimes happens in these types of circumstances, and probably some listeners in this audience are going to relate to this circumstance, I found myself at the reception at a table with an orthopedic surgeon, two anesthesiologists, a family medicine doc, two ER docs, a CT surgeon, and a two-year-old and yours truly. And eventually, after some of the vino had been flowing and we enjoyed a great dinner together, one of the physicians in the circle popped the question, would you rather have a BKA or retrain in another specialty? (laughs) It was funny to me that, well, first of all, I had to Google what that was as the only non-clinician in the circle, not counting my two and a half year old. It was funny to me that It was unanimous that every physician around this table wanted to have part of their limb removed rather than train in another specialty. (laughs) The rationale in some cases was, man, prosthetics are getting just so technologically advanced. It might actually be an improvement in some cases. And then a very creative discussion ensued about, well, if I took my arm at the elbow, maybe I could get a, a laryngoscope prosthesis and just be like Captain Hook in the OR and... Things (laughs) things only devolved from there. But interestingly, I thought there was some intuitive understanding of a principle that is really important and yet certainly not taught anywhere in med school or residency or anywhere that I think in some ways was intuited by the physicians in the circle. This principle is that of opportunity cost, meaning if you're spending your time doing one thing, You can't spend your time doing something else. And there is, in many cases, a cost to that kind of circumstance. If you have to retrain in another specialty and you spend four years or five years or six years as a resident slash fellow, rather than as an attending in just cold economic terms, there's a real economic cost to doing that, to working as a resident, making 60 or 70 grand and working 80 hour weeks for years, instead of being an attending physician with hopefully a little more autonomy and a lot more compensation. So this intuition that every physician unanimously sort of agreed at, agreed upon at this, uh, at this table during this wedding conversation, I strongly suspect it was never part of any curriculum. And yet it's a really important principle. So this caused me to start asking some questions. What is the opportunity cost? First of all, of that question is an interesting question. And secondly, of 
doing additional fellowship training, especially in circumstances where that fellowship is not going to result in a change in your compensation? This is a very real question because, especially in anesthesiology, uh, doctors will often have an opportunity to subspecialize, sometimes in circumstances where, A, they're not going to use their fellowship at all, or B, they're going to use it to do 30 or 40 or 50% of their workload going forward clinically, but maybe not all the time, and maybe not a majority of the time. And I think bringing an understanding of the economic impact, the opportunity cost of that training can be an important mechanism for making an informed decision about, is a fellowship worth it? And what is the rationale for a fellowship? And in what circumstances should you do one or not? And if you're going to do one, at least go in with eyes wide open as to what it's going to mean for your financial future. So I ran some numbers because I was curious <laughs> and wanted to satisfy my own curiosity. And I also wanted to inform doctors out there who are considering subspecializing a fellowship or in some cases going back for a fellowship after becoming an attending, which I've seen a handful of times. So the content of today's discussion is just going to be exploring this topic in brief. So what I did was I created a spreadsheet. I ran some numbers and I said, if you're a resident making $68,000 in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, if you're making 68 grand and you're married, you're going to net about $52,000 of that as a resident. If you're an attending physician and I just picked a random number of $400,000 of total comp, you're going to net about $286,000. That's your first year attending salary. So the difference between 286 and 52 is 234,000. So if you decide to go PGY5 as a resident, 234 grand in that PGY5 year is the number that you could earn as an attending, but you're not going to. $234,000, almost a quarter of a million after tax in your checking account kind of money. So, you know, in one year, that kind of sounds like a lot, but it's also just a number in abstraction and doesn't really have meaning. But one way that it's helpful to look at numbers like this and to understand sort of the impact is to take that value and say, in terms of my journey to financial independence, what does this mean? What does this one year delay, this 234 grand in my PGY5 year, what does that represent in terms of financial momentum over the long term? And if you're a 31-year-old who's going to have a 30-year career as an anesthesiologist, here's what this means. If you're married, which gives you a little bit of a tax advantage, and we grow your money in an after-tax manner at 7% per year, which in a mostly equity allocation is a reasonable long-term assumption. Over 30 years, that 234 grand grows to $1.6 million at the age of 61. So... One way to look at this is to say for every year that I'm doing fellowship, if I assume that in that PGY-5 year, whether I'm a fellow or an attending, and this is a big assumption that I want to point out, if I assume that in that year I'm going to quote unquote live like a resident in order to build wealth, save money, pay off debt, whatever, if that 234000 really all goes into investments, what that means is that for every year of fellowship, I'm costing myself. $1.6 million at retirement of money that is after-tax money that I can do whatever I want to with. So again, to put this in terms of what does that mean for me, if it costs you at that time, we'll just pick a number, a quarter million dollars to live, that's about five years worth of living expenses. <laughs> five years worth of living expenses that you could cover 
at the age of 30, but because you're doing a fellowship, because of the opportunity cost, and because of the impact of compounding that takes that opportunity cost in year one, and it actually significantly increases it. It makes it much more costly over 30 years. That means it's a really, it's a costly decision. So here's the point that I want to make. A fellowship, if you want to take one on, is not something that should be done lightly. It should be, I mean, you should have a real <laughs> move towards a clinical setting that's important to you or a type of research that you really want to do, doing types of cases that you want to be your bread and butter. If you're doing something because, oh my gosh, finding a job seems like so much work and I'm kind of nervous to be an attending because I'll be the decision maker and I'm not sure I'm ready for that stress. I mean, it's fine. And I'm not here to tell you, you absolutely shouldn't do that. But I am here to tell you that for every year that you delay, it's about $1.6 million in a taxable investment account with your name on it at retirement that you're not going to get back. So make sure that it's really, really something that's important to you. Furthermore, there are certain cases in which I've heard physicians say from an employability standpoint, from a job security standpoint, I just want to have that critical care fellowship. I just want to have that cardiac fellowship, even though I don't really want to do the ICU and I don't really need to do heart surgery. I just feel like having the additional training is going to be an extra layer of safety. And again, I'm not here to tell you that's 100% wrong, but what I can tell you is that for the last few years, and this trend shows no sign of slowing down, the role of an anesthesiologist and frankly, CRNAs and AAs, it is just so in demand and getting more in demand every day. And we can't make enough anesthesiologists because of the constraints on residency programs because of CMS and the way that the GME system works. We just, we can't get enough anesthesia. So you're going to be continually in significant demand whether or not you have a fellowship. And there's actually a lot of demand just for bread and butter anesthesia, general practice anesthesiologists out there who have no fellowship training. You're gonna be able to find a job. At least all indications are that that's gonna continue for far into the future. So when you're thinking about the question of, should I do a fellowship in order to be more employable and to insulate myself against a CRNA taking my job one day? Oh man, <laughs> if you were to say, Justin, I'll pay you $1.6 million, and you can take your chances with employment, or you can pay me 1.6 and you'll maybe have some marginal opportunity to be slightly more employable against some unforeseen risk sometime in the future. I'll take the 1.6 million every day. Granted, I'm the financial advisor, so maybe that's just me, but it's important to point out this dynamic that frankly, I think is often based on a mistaken assumption that if you're just an anesthesiologist without fellowship training, you're gonna struggle to find a job. Again, this is, broad observations based on looking at every clinical setting and every different site of service. If you need to work in a certain hospital and do certain types of procedures and certain types of research, yeah, you're going to need a fellowship. But it comes at significant cost in terms of opportunity cost. So something to keep in mind for those who are especially entering CA3 and thinking about what's going on next year, is it really something that you want to sign on for? It's worth considering. That's all I've got for today. Thanks as always for tuning in to APM Success. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.